This is a Federal News Network podcast. You might not think of farm and urban in the same sentence, but the Agriculture Department does. In fact, there's a new federal advisory committee designed to help the department better understand the needs of urban farmers. Joining me with more, the chief of USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service, Terry Crosby. Mr. Crosby, good to have you on. Tom, thank you for having me this morning. It's great to be here. First of all, let's define urban agriculture, because I imagine it's more than victory gardens and rooftop gardens and that kind of thing. Yes, it is. You know, we have a lot of folks out there that are in areas where, you know, we have places where grocery stores have closed up. So anywhere could be an urban garden. But the thing I want to stress here is is that, you know, it doesn't have to be a million people location. It could be a small metropolitan area where there's only five houses. And so urban garden takes a lot of forms and shapes. And I think even in Washington, D.C., there is an operating farm that is way more than a garden, that is a production-oriented, trying-to-sell-products-at-market type of operation. And I guess this is not uncommon? It is not uncommon. You know, here at USDA, we also have a People's Garden Initiative where we're growing fruits and vegetables. We don't sell them, but we have that set up out there so folks can walk through. But, you know, this is something that a lot of folks have been doing for a lot of years. You know, a lot of people want to buy local, grow local. It's working all across the country, and urban agriculture looks different in every community. And does the USDA have any sort of handle on how big this movement is in terms of acreage or economic output in a given year? Well, that's something that we're going to be working on because right now we don't have a lot of data on this. We know that across this country and a lot of the urban metropolitan areas, there's a lot of folks that, you know, really have farming in their DNA and they really want to do this. And so we got a lot of folks doing this just in their backyards from having maybe a planter with a few tomatoes or a few vegetables in it to people that have cultivated some big acreages and some of the green space out there. So it is something that's really growing. It's something that we're really excited about because whether it's urban or rural, it's part of agriculture. And when you think of USDA as helping farmers, you tend to think in terms of the big farms and the need for crop supports and all of these other massive programs that get reauthorized from time to time. What programs do you have for urban agriculturalists and farmers? And is that something you're looking to maybe alter and tailor more closely to what they need? Well, you know, we've always had something there for urban farmers or urban production. And so a lot of the things that we offer in the rural community, we also offer in the urban community, especially when we talk about farm bill and farm bill programs. All it is is just on a smaller scale. So urban producers go through a lot of the same procedures and the different policies we have for our rural producers, as you talked about. So it's it's pretty much the same concept, but it's just on a smaller scale. Well, how do you distinguish between someone who is just, say, a hobbyist, though, and someone who's actually a farmer in the sense of being qualified for USDA programs? Well, we don't distinguish those. What we do is, you know, there's a process that that any landowner that wants to participate in farm bill program have to go through. They start over at the Farm Service Agency, and they go in, and they get a track number and a farm number, and then there's an eligibility thing that they go through. And then if they're found to be eligible, then they can apply for any of our farm bill programs. And another thing we have is, is that some folks may not want to participate in the programs, but we have what we call technical assistance where we can go out and assist them and talk about, you know, soils and soil health and kind of how to do a lot of these things. And so there's a lot of opportunities here for any producer that wants to work with USDA. 
We are speaking with Terry Cosby, chief of the Natural Resources Conservation Service at the Agriculture Department. And I asked about you know the total size of it. Is it the sense of USDA? Is it your sense that urban agriculture is growing? No pun intended, but it's getting to be a larger field. <laughs> I think you're going to see a larger footprint because, like I say, people are being more health conscious and aware of the needs. And, you know, when you can grow your own fruits and vegetables and, and harvest them and take them into your own kitchen and use them, you actually know where that is coming from and the love and care that you've given it. And so it's something to watch. You know, as a boy growing up in Mississippi, you know, I'm a farm boy. And so we had gardens and that's how we lived. Uh, you really didn't buy a lot of this stuff in town. And so we have a lot of folks that's going Going back to a lot of things they did in their youth or their childhood, I know that their parents and grandparents did. And so, like I say, a lot of folks have farming in their DNA. What are some of the particular issues that an urban farm might encounter that, say, a large standard unurban farm might not? For example, suppose someone, I'm just making this up, but suppose they establish an urban farm on a couple of acres that used to have a rubber factory or you know, or an electronics factory or they made capacitors and there could be all kinds of chemicals in the soil. Well, you know, we have a lot of different type situations, but, you know, like I said, we talked about the technical assistance that we offer. And also there's a lot of the universities and a lot of folks out there that are happy to look at this. But you got to have a, you know, a good healthy soil to raise these products just so you're making sure that you're raising a healthy product there. And we have instances where, you know, we have abandoned homes where, you know, there's soil contamination and some of those type things. So we encourage folks to do a soil test to make sure they know what's there. If there's some contaminants or problems there, then there are folks out there that can help them decide, you know, whether they need to remove those soils, if they need to bring in new soil. And so there's a whole series of things that we're asking people. Some of the other things you've got to contend with in the urban areas, sometimes there's a permit involved, especially if you're in an industrialized area where they have uh, city codes and zoning. So there are some special things that folks in the urban areas might have to go through to get that permit to build, especially if you want to put up a structure like a hoop house or some of those type things. So like I said, every city is different. Every community is different. And so we have folks locally there can work with the individuals to figure out, okay, how do I do this? And by the same token, say someone could find something in the soil test, but one of the USDA experts could say, well, yes, that's in the soil, but it does not make its way into the cantaloupes. So you don't have anything to worry about. About. Well, like I said, we have a lot of folks out there, like universities and a lot of folks out there that has that expertise. You know, we talk from a soil health standpoint about how to take care of the soil, but there are a lot of other folks out there that, that work alongside of us to talk about, you know, if you find these type things, maybe this is a way that you need to remediate that soil to make sure you're not growing something that's going to lead to unhealthy food. Sure. And we've been talking mostly about the planting type of agriculture, you know, of plants. What about animals? Animal husbandry and chickens and pigs and so forth in urban settings. Does that come up from time to time? Well, you know, we've been looking at mostly gardening, but there's a lot of cities that allow that. A lot of these places, there's a limit on how many you can have with this one cow or 10 chickens or a couple pigs. But there are some places out there that allow folks to actually do this, you know, bee farming. You know, that's part of agriculture. So there's a lot of ways that you can be involved from the animal side to the plant side. And is there something that different political subdivisions, cities, towns, counties, can do to encourage this? For example, where I live, I walk by this great big field, and they divide it every spring into like a 100 different little squares that people cultivate. 
and then it's all gone, you know, come fall and they till it over and then people come back again in the spring. But it's under the auspices of the city subdivision. Yes, and I know I've done this before. You know, I moved off the farm and moved into some of the cities. One of the things that you find is is that having access to land in some places is a problem when you want to do this. So if you can go into a lot of these communities and work with some of the local churches or some of the local food banks where they have, you know, some green space where they're willing to let you have a small plot to go out and raise these vegetables. We have folks out there from USDA that go out in, in these small communities and they go out and plant a garden and they have class is there to talk about what's being grown and how do you make sure your soil is productive and all of the things that you need to make sure you're successful. So there's all type of farming, whether it's small or big, but you know, like I say, it's different almost in every community. Well, next time we'll talk about canning for the winter. Terry Cosby is chief of the Natural Resources Conservation Service at the Agriculture Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, thank you, and call us anytime. We love talking about urban agriculture. All right. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent, and what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. There's no place like the beach for the holidays. In Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, you get all the charm and cheer of the season. Plus, 60 miles of nonstop fun. See holiday shows at 10 top-notch theaters. Enjoy perfect golfing weather at 90 scenic courses. Be dazzled by five holiday light displays. And get seasonal Southern Eats at over 2,000 restaurants. This will be one holiday you won't forget. Plan your winter getaway at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature.